0: Would you turn with me to Mark's Gospel chapter 9 and we're going to begin with with verse 9. And we're going to read through verse 13. Would you like to stand with me again as we honor God's Word one more time? As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked Him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written About him. Praise your name, Lord. I pray for your inspiration to be upon us today, Father. I pray that you will illuminate our hearts and you will allow your Holy Spirit to penetrate into our very souls. We thank you, Father, for your word, for its inspiration, for its reliability, its trustworthiness. We thank you, Father, especially that we have your word before us today. It's not hidden somewhere far away, but it's been preserved so that today we can take it up with a sense of safety and reliability as we look at your word And with the confidence that the same spirit that breathed this word out into the minds of men who wrote it under his instruction. Apostles and prophets. That same spirit has preserved it. That same spirit is here today now. Breathing again upon and through and out that word to us. So let us be inspired today by it to such an extent that we will go and breathe that same word out to others in this lost and wicked generation. In Jesus' name we pray. Open our eyes today that we might behold wondrous things from your law. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, remarkably, Jesus and his disciples are still in the region of Caesarea Philippi. This is the northeastern region above the Sea of Galilee, above Capernaum, above the land of the Jews. And it's clearly in the heart of the Gentile region where Jesus has been during all these different teachings that we have looked at. From the Gospel of Mark. It's on this Gentile campaign that we see him. And if you have maps, is there a map behind me right now? No. Okay, if you have maps, sorry, that wasn't a cue, Andres. It just it always surprised me because you, everybody's looking up behind me when I'm talking. But um, we see that he's taking this trip, just suddenly just decides to go up to Tyre and then up to the Sidon and then From there, instead of taking the very short trip back to Capernaum, he heads west and he trails around, literally trails around throughout Caesarea Philippi all the way down into the Decapolis on the other side of the Sea of Galilee and south and goes to these different places and preaches to the Gentiles. And then in order to show his great generosity. He holds a little dinner for them. Remember that? The same way that earlier he had been among the Jewish people and he held this wonderful feast for over 15,000 of them and fed them from his very hand by a miracle of the bread and the the fish. And so he did the same exact thing with 4,000 Gentiles here in this region. And so we see the Messiah doing this very peculiar thing And that is the Messiah is coming to awaken his people. And Jesus, by his actions, by his words here, has completely redefined who his people are. Aren't you glad of that today? I mean, we're all the other people, right? We're the ones that were on the other side, except for maybe some among us, historically Jewish. But as a result, we see him through his, just his actions and then his words and then his compassion and his miracles and his healing of Gentile people all the while being observed by the Pharisees who are watching him and have on several occasions confronted him because of his actions toward the Gentile people. And so we see, just have seen, as he's in the land of the Gentiles, that he went to a high mountain We saw this last time in the presence of Peter, James, and John. His three witnesses, not necessarily his inner core of people, but his three witnesses according to the Hebrew law. He was transfigured along with the appearance of Moses and Elijah before their eyes. It was an incredible epiphany that took place for him, for them. We've talked a little bit about the the issue of epiphanies and experiences with God and seeing things and hearing things that just, we're so convinced in our historical walk with the Lord, these are like high mountains for us. And on that mountain, when they were transfigured, they heard the voice of God the Father making the statement, this is my son, listen to him. As far as a message is concerned that they received on the mountain, that's the message. That's the voice. That's the words. That's the only thing they came away from the mountain with. Everything else had to do with what they watched, what they saw, what they observed. It said that Jesus was speaking with Moses and Elijah, but they don't know what he said. A great cloud came upon them, and God's voice resounded through that cloud. And we heard those words This is my son. Listen to him. It's it's a very important phrase that we'll continue to emphasize here today and as we continue through this teaching. So there was clearly a mountaintop experience, but now they're coming down from the mountain. And they're coming down with a great deal of confusion from the mountain. Not only were they apparently not listening to Jesus before, But even when they did listen to him, they didn't know what he was talking about. They would misunderstand it, or they would misapply it, or just not know what it was at all. Their world, on the other hand, was very shaken. It was still shaking. What's the source of their trouble? Let's do a little brief review, okay? The title of this sermon is Down the Mountain into a New World. Well, first, they'd been challenged by the person of the Messiah. Matthew, or Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through 33. I'd like you to turn for these, with these, to these with me if you could. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have some on the tables there you could borrow. Obviously, some people have borrowed them and taken them, but you could borrow one. If you would, you could take one if you don't have a Bible, but you could borrow one. But they've been challenged by the person of Jesus, the person of the Messiah. In Mark 8, 27 through 33, it says Jesus and his disciples. Now, we've already looked at these, okay? So this is a review. We've looked at these already, but I wanted to keep us current as we think about this. Sometimes we think the Bible is written so we can have, you know, each Sunday we can have a new sermon that's completely independent on its own. That's not how the Bible was written. It's not how it's transmitted. Mark didn't write you know, 50 sermons so we could stand up and preach any one of them at any time and have a message. He preached for a purpose, for overriding purpose. And we see that first mission among the Gentiles that Jesus went on, that concluded with the feeding of the, the multitude. And now we see this journey of the Gentiles. And these are connected not only by they're a chronological context, but they're also historical and chronological context, but they're also connected by the message. And here it's an ever-revealing message. It's an expanding message. And the first thing that challenged these disciples was that person of the Messiah. In the text, Mark 8, 27, 33, Jesus and His disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, He asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And we saw in its synoptic context that in Matthew it says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Actually identifying his incarnate nature as he said who he was. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, he said. In Matthew's Gospel, it said that Peter actually said to him, this is never going to happen to you, Lord. What's going to never happen to him? No one is going to cause you to suffer and no one is going to kill you and no one is going to bury you as long as I'm alive. It seems to be what he was saying. No one's going to do this thing that you just said, including the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I and mean, What is the center of our faith? That Christ has risen from the dead, as he said. Yet he doesn't even see that at all. Even though Jesus says. said, Jesus could make things pretty plain, don't you think? You know, a lot of us, we get things a little bit confusing, but if you thought Jesus is going to speak to you, it's going to be plain. It says he was telling these things to them plainly in verse 32. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Well, then, he introduces a couple of things. things. There's Satan there, and he introduces that Peter is now being called Satan, so it's, a, it's challenging. <laughs> it's very challenging because he, they clearly had misunderstood the nature of the Messiah, the nature of Jesus Christ. They've been challenged by the person of the Messiah. Next thing is, they, and that was one of the earlier texts we looked at in Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through 38. Let's turn there for a moment. In this, we're going to see that they had been challenged by the calling of the Messiah upon them, their calling. It was, it was a very interesting thing to see those early days of when Peter and John, or Peter and Andrew, his brother, were on the boat, remember? They're just walking by, and he said, follow me, and he kept on walking, and next thing you know, they jump off their boat, and they're following Jesus, and they go to that next morning, they go into the synagogue in Capernaum, and the whole place is just up in, up in a, a a huge uh, reaction because Jesus did this little thing of just healing a guy. I mean, just it's a little thing. Just healing him. But everything was up in, a, up in a roar and then the whole region of Capernaum and just within a short period of time, they're inundated by people coming, all of them with their hand or their arm or their kid or their situation hang, uh, hand before them to get him to minister to them. And so they started thinking in terms of you know, messianic, ministry, what you'd expect the Messiah to be, and then thinking they're just following Him because they wanted to follow Him, but they're following Him. You ever feel that way? I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus? Realistically, can anyone in this room say that I can follow Jesus Christ? How have you been doing at it? How have you been doing at it? If it's, has it been struggle? You, I, well, I can't quite do this right. I can't do that right. Well, honestly, We can't do any of it. We're not following Jesus. Well, let's read what he says. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their own soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when He comes in His Father's glory with the holy angels. Now at that point, we remember quoting James Edwards in his great commentary of the Gospel of Mark. He said, once again, Mark reminds readers that disciples are not in fellowship with Jesus because of their knowledge, their virtue, their abilities, or their will. They are in fellowship solely because of Jesus' sovereign call and they remain in fellowship only because of his faithfulness to them. We are Christ's disciples because he's called us. That's what makes us special. He didn't call us because we were special. He calls us, and the calling makes us special. It sets us aside. We didn't set aside ourselves as holy. He set, ourselves, set us aside as holy. Just that's, Those words are synonymous, holy and setting aside. Holiness simply means to set aside for a special use. And we wake up one day and we realize, I didn't choose Christ. Christ chose me according to his scriptures. In John chapter 15, Jesus said, You didn't choose me, I chose you and ordained you to bear fruit, and fruit that will last. That's a mystery to people. It kind of shocks them. It causes some people to argue. No, wait a minute, I have a free will. Free of what? Is it free of sin? Is there some virtue in you? At any level, the virtue in you that you can exercise and you can have a relationship with God, you can choose God? No, we find the Scriptures... Over and again, that is exactly the opposite. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's no virtue in me that I can choose to use in order to get anywhere. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. And so Jesus is calling them to a radical relationship to Him. It's, It's really a life relationship. It's a Death to the old man and a life in the new man. And what do we struggle with the most? We struggle with that tension, don't we? A tension between what he has called us to be and what his intentions are and then what I can try to do and try to keep up. But he puts the whole emphasis upon himself. That he will, he will be the one who brings us into a relationship with Him. They've been challenged by the calling, life calling of the Messiah upon them. We looked at that as well. And third, we see in chapter 9, verse 1, they've been challenged as their world turned upside down, or right side up, really, in their understanding of the end, of eschatology, the end. You know, Professor Gordon Fee used to say over and over again everybody is eschatological. We're all eschatological people. And until you know that eschatology simply means the end, we're all people of the end. And the Jewish people, were eschatological people. They still, Orthodox Jews, are very eschatological in their thinking. They're thinking about the end of something and the beginning of something. Christians are thinking about the end of something and the beginning of something. It's the end of this world and the beginning of a heavenly world, if we just put it in broad terms, right? The Jewish people didn't think like that about eschatology. They weren't thinking that the world was going to change when the Messiah was going to come from the standpoint of a different location in heaven or going through some kind of final judgment, all those kind of things. They thought it was going to be simple, but it was going to be highly complex, but simple in its execution. From creation until the time of the Messiah, they were in Satan's world, and Satan was, many different Satans were in their world, always oppressing them, always overcoming them, setting in some kind of a slave relationship. The current one was obviously Rome. And they wanted this to come to an end. And they believed that it was going to come to an end when the Messiah came. When they went to John the Baptist, he was baptizing people out in the wilderness, and they asked him, the Pharisees, asked him, are you the Messiah... Or should we look for another one? Are we looking for somebody else? Are you the Messiah? Why would they ask John the Baptist if he was Messiah? Because they saw that he was having a, a radical change on the people's lives. They were coming out of lives of sin, repenting, and coming into lives of righteousness. There was an end to one, a beginning of the other. But it wasn't this complete cataclysmic change yet. And so they're thinking, if he's the Messiah, he's going to bring the change, the end to the oppression, and he's going to throw off Rome and rule from Jerusalem for a thousand years. Isn't that what the Messiah is? He's the mighty God, wonderful counselor. His reign will last forever and ever. The Jews did not not believe that. They believed that radically. But they just didn't have the right end and the right, in, the right, the right beginning of the next thing. And so they're Jesus came along preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. His first message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. I I mean, that's a pretty big key. The kingdom of God, the rule of God, the reign of the Messiah is come. And they'd been challenged as their world turned upside down in understanding, in their understanding of eschatology. In Mark chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus said to them, Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. And we talked a lot, a lot about eschatology and what is the Jewish expectation of eschatology, and then what's our expectation of eschatology. Do you think that there's somebody that's got it, that's got it all right? They got it all figured out. They got the right. Whole, the whole plan is true some people talk about eschatology like that you know some people think I talk about eschatology like that but I'm much more humble than most people see so (laughs) I don't I don't get people to be my enemies (laughs) but you think that like today people say here's all you got to do is turn on you know certain television shows and you can see somebody just go you turn on the show, and they're going, blah, 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 scripture, 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 tell you all about eschatology, where the Antichrist is going to come up, and it's going to be at this going to be in its place, and this guy in this place, this town, and then he's going to rule the whole world. He's going to destroy the temple in Jerusalem, or the mosque in Jerusalem. The temple's going to be rebuilt, blah, 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 blah. blah. There's going to be sacrifices again, the priests, and da, 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 da. Uh. You heard this for I mean, it's just like, I remember when I, before I was actually saved and started listening to God, uh, I, just, I had this whole thing memorized. I, I could prove. I could, I'd love to do this. Someone say, "What's your what's your view of eschatology?" I Go, wham, just like all the way to the end. When's this going to happen? Well, we got to look for the signs. The signs are this, 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 and this. You know, the wars and rumors of wars, and you know, da 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 da, from Matthew chapter twenty four. And I just had it down, and I, and I felt very good about that. Mostly, I felt good that it was way out there someplace. You know long away and far away or something like that. And um, Jesus is coming again. So look for these signs. And, you, and you're here today. Um, have a big hurricane. I don't think coronavirus is listed in the scriptures, but, you know, <laughs> wars and rumors of wars. You know, there'll be trouble in places. And people will say, "This." I know we're close to the end. I know we're close to the end. What's well, eschatology? And Jesus was an eschatological figure. The thing we need to figure out is when is the end and when is the beginning so that we can have a sense of what beginning means and what end means. We think so, but every person, every, every, every eschatological um, idea or framework, I should say, and there's thousands of them. We think that we just it's only the one we know right now in our own time frame, but it's not. There have been eschatological um, frameworks all the way back, even before the Civil War. Every major war, they thought this was the end. This was the end. The pilgrims thought this was the end. They've come to the end of the old age, the beginning of the kingdom rule. They even said it in the Mayflower Compact. You ever read that? This is going to be God's kingdom on earth, they said. We see it over and over and over again. The expectation that this is it. This is the time. And Jesus... Tells his disciples, however, in, in relationship to all those times, you notice that there's a lot of time frames, right? And, and this person, they lived you know, 100 years ago, and they lived 50 years ago, and they lived 25 years ago, and they live now, and then they're going to live so forth. And all of them seem to have their own timing, but surprisingly, it's always in my future. It's going to be in my future sometime. Jesus says to them this strange thing. When he talks about this, this eschatology, and he's talked about this a second time, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Matthew 24, you see the word immediately after this destruction that he talks about when the temple all falls down or, or knocked down. They're going, to see, they're going to see these things immediately after it. At that time, he says more than once, at that time, after that time, after that time, at that time, after that time. He's not talking about after the time when you see it out here, you know, 2,000 years later. He, at least he believes, it seems, that something's going to happen in the lifetime of the persons who are standing right in front of him. There's going to be an eschatological change that takes place. And as I said before, that's all we're going to talk about with that. Just simply to see that this challenge is before them. (laughs) A challenge was before them. They just went right straight from there up on top of a mountain, had a mountaintop experience. They come down and then you hear these words. The Heavenly Father says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. It's something that they really weren't doing so well. As we pick up our text in the verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, note, and you might think, well, you're just kind of picking things. Well, the Bible is meant to be specific, and it's meant to be exegeted, carefully studied. Notice the words. He gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. It doesn't say anywhere, don't tell anybody what you heard. The only thing is the product of what, on that mountain, there's some things they saw they didn't understand, some things they said that were ridiculous, offering Moses and Elijah a new place to live on top of that mountain. And Jesus, it's radically crazy when you think, where do you think Moses and Elijah just came from? I mean, heaven must be a dump if they think, you know, we're going to take your shack on top of this hill. But just this, and then they fall down, according to Matthew, as if they're dead, but they fell asleep, or they were just, I think it was more like this, it, was, it wasn't they were dead or asleep, they're down there going, <laughs> you know, don't talk, he's kind of shaking, like, uh, by the way, thank you, Roger, Isaiah, not Jeremiah, as I said last week, you know, I'm coming apart, he says, he's standing in heaven, I'm undone, I'm out, I'm, this is, I can't relate, I, I have no way to even have a contextual view of what's happening to me right now. But the simple message on that mountain was, listen to Jesus. Listen to what he's saying. They kept the matter to themselves. (laughs) Discussing what rising from the dead meant. Now, the other disciples already know this message. This is not like the message that only the three have. Because before they went up there, he was plainly telling all of them, as we read already today, that he was going to go to Jerusalem, he was going to be arrested, he was going to suffer, he was going to die, and he was going to rise from the dead. So that, he already, everybody already heard that. Peter obviously didn't listen to him when he said it. You know, listening is actually comprehending, not just your ears functioning, but listening is actually understanding it. First thing Peter said is, that's never happened to you, as long as I'm alive. You know, quite a, quite a confession. The other, other disciples, you know, the words were there, but the comprehension wasn't there for them either. But they, the, it wasn't as if he was telling, don't state anything to those other guys, you know. It's just for you three, my, my three generals. Don't tell the lieutenants, it's for you. You know, I had one man said once time that the, the whole Bible is like a military formation. New Testament's apostle, Paul is the general, and then he has all, you know, thinking, okay, I want to stay away from you as far as I can stay away from you. But it would base it on these kinds of things, this militaristic view of authority and leadership. Jesus has three persons there to witness this because of the passage in Deuteronomy where it says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. That's very likely why they're there. But the word was listened to him. And they're discussing, what does it mean to rise from the dead? What does that mean when you say rise from the dead? He's alive. He's he's met with Moses and Elijah. This guy's never going to be killed. He has to be the Messiah. He has to be the one that's going to run Rome out of our lives. He's got to be this person because he's got this power. I mean, This this stuff Jesus is saying about going to Jerusalem, He's going to go to Jerusalem, but when He goes to Jerusalem, He's going to be crowned King. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. And now having heard this statement rising from the dead, it's as if they're trying to understand how to explain something they know can't be part of their eschatological framework. You can't kill the Messiah. They're not hearing resurrection. They're hearing dead. Later on, they find out that he can rise from the dead. Still uninitiated, still not fully listening. They're standing on a mountain, and then they can say, he can fly too. An angel comes down and says, why are you standing here? Didn't you listen to him? Go and do what he told you to do. There was no ability to hear and understand. The listening was, they're listening and they're trying to hear, but they weren't comprehending it. And, and I don't want to rush ahead here too much and tell the whole story, but they needed some help. They needed to have their ears open, they needed to be awakened, they needed to be born of the Spirit. But at this point, they weren't. They're discussing what it means to rise from the. D- okay, let's get this in right. Rise from the dead, dead, and they asked him, "Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must first come? Come first? It's kind of it's to say among themselves, we had this figured out. The Bible says that Elijah will come." And He'll restore all things. It's the last thing that's written in the last book of the Old Testament. It's, it's literally right before the Inter Testament period. But it's the last revelation after the deportation and return to Israel. It's when the people of God were there and the prophets then were sent to speak to them. And Malachi came. And we see in Malachi chapter 4. And verse 5 and 6. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to the parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Last statement before the 400 years of darkness. The last revelation that was given to Israel. That Elijah would come. He would come and he would restore all things. He'd restore all things. He would be this figure that, like he was in life. With immense power, immense, immense relationship to God in a relational way that, through Him, great things happen. He's the greatest prophet as far as power of all the prophets. You want to see some really, uh, you know, modern day? Never mind. I don't want to say that. You know, like the tele, you know, the shows we have all these Avengers and all this stuff. You know, every one of them's got some immense power. That's how Elijah was. He comes up to a person. He's lost his axe head in the water. Elijah says, what's wrong? I lost my axe head. He goes, the axe head floats up the top of the water. Oh, okay. See you later. i got to go. You know, the, the prophets of Baal. Baal, right? Not Baal. And their plurals, not Baals. It's Baals. Okay? Say it with me. Baals. Good. Okay, good. It's probably bales.. <laughs> anyway. um, and so as we, you see me as being this prophet, this powerful prophet. He's going to come and when he come, no one's going to be able to, to not know, it's him. That, that's how powerful that, that, that this is. He's going to restore the fathers to the children, the children to the fathers in that great and powerful day of the Lord. And that hasn't happened yet. That's what they've listened to. They've listened to their teachers who tell them this is going to be the sign of the Messiah coming, that Elijah's going to come first and restore everything, and the Messiah's going to kind of come in and just sit on the throne. Do you think they've got some eschatological inconsistencies in their view? Do you hear me? You with me? Listen to Jesus. He replied. To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Let's talk about the persons in, the eschatolo- in your eschatological framework. When, they, when Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? Is it possible, Andre, to put that Isaiah 53 thing back up there for a minute? Let's turn there for a minute. Isaiah 53. interesting story about Isaiah 53 when I was at the University of Maryland I was in college and I took a course over there called um, the Old Testament as literature and I took this course as a Christian because there was nothing in the entire catalog that had anything to do with Christianity at the University of Maryland at that time and I haven't looked lately but I wonder if that course is among that fallen group that's a joke by the way I wrote this paper on Isaiah 53. These verses right here, okay? Isaiah 53, one through six. And I did a very careful job of demonstrating that what Isaiah was speaking about, who Isaiah was, was Jesus Christ. I got an A on the paper. This teacher always gave me A's. It's pretty interesting, although I'm sure no one had as much red on their paper as mine did. Notes to you. She didn't even turn over and around the back of the paper. See this note in the back. And so she took issue. She's a Jewish woman. Um, the Bible as Hebrew literature, that was what it's called. Let's go. And she showed me, as much as I showed her step by step, this was Jesus Christ. She showed me step by step this was not Jesus Christ. This was the nation of Israel. This is how the nation of Israel. Is viewed among the nations. Well, mine made perfect sense and it was completely clear and hers made no sense and it was completely unclear. To her, mine made no sense and it was completely unclear and ambiguous. And so we, we both agree with each other. We were both wrong. But just for a moment, just look at these words. Who has believed our message Do you think that even the disciples at this point were seeing Jesus like that? Why would they ask about Elijah after the revelation of thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God? You're the Messiah, Mark says. Of course, Mark is writing some years later from this time frame. He has a you know a Greek audience. He's in Rome. The word Messiah means great leader. Doesn't to the, the Christ, the Son of the Living God. You know, he's reaching a persecuted group in Rome at that time. But think in terms of this: what do you need in order to see in Isaiah 53 Jesus Christ? You need Jesus Christ. You need to listen to Jesus in order to see this is Jesus. That was Jesus. That's what's missing from Isaiah 53. And until Jesus Christ is revealed, until we have a revelation of His Word and His message, until we see Him and listen to Him, we don't understand these things. But when we see Him... Our whole eschatological framework is completely changed. Think of the Apostle Paul, for example. Apostle Paul didn't know this was about Jesus. To such an extent that he thought these Christians, their message of a dead and risen Messiah was a heresy, and he was going around and he was destroying them. You remember this? He later called himself a blasphemer, a murderer. Particularly, I think, thinking of Stephen's life, but perhaps many others. So as a result, he was on a road to Damascus and he sees a light and he falls down on the ground. And in one phrase, three words, I am Jesus, he hears. And his whole world has changed. His whole interpretation of all the scriptures. You didn't have to teach the apostle Paul all about the Bible and for him to become a Christian teacher. You put Jesus in the Old Testament and everybody is a great teacher if you know the Old Testament. And the more you know it, the more it just turns like that. Just changes like that. When we listen to Jesus. What a simple statement he hear on that mountain. And then Jesus simply clarifies this. He clarifies it to them by the phrase, Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? The teachers of the law had left that little detail out. They had an eschatological view that didn't include a suffering Messiah. They had an eschatological view that showed a suffering Israel. And then Elijah coming and restoring all things, and eventually the Messiah coming in to be their king. Perhaps even an earthly king, to return to the monarchical period, maybe. I don't know, in some people's minds. But you see how their eschatology was completely off. And who was with them? The ones the teachers of the law taught, and that was these men here. It's, it's amazing everybody's a theologian. You know, you think that people here well, people are on church something about the Bible. There's enough in movies to get a little bit about what the Bible's about. You think about the people that have views of the Bible. Imagine if they're taught clearly to believe this eschatological framework and the players in the eschatological framework. Man, they can just be missing it by 100,000 miles. If you don't see that, well, it's not there anymore. If you don't see that Isaiah is talking about Christ. Now, now Roger, you said earlier he was speaking of Christ in the earlier passage. But the Jewish people, as they reflect on that, they don't believe that's Christ. Then you did say it right. With the revelation of the New Testament in mind, we see that's Christ. That's what it is. When we have Jesus, we see these things. And what a blessing it is to see them. Jesus said to His disciples, many wise men and prophets long to see what you see, but they did not see it. Blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For our information, Christ Jesus is Lord. He is Messiah. He is the author and the, the one who is in the Old Testament. It speaks of Him. Don't you wish you'd been on that, uh, uh, that road down to Emmaus? As He reflected, didn't our hearts burn within us? as He opened the Scriptures and told us everything about them was Him? I would love to be on that walk, wouldn't you? But we're still on that walk, aren't we? We're still on that walk. But it's so sad how quickly we argue because we've got some framework they've already set up about the whole thing. You know, Paul said, and I say this at funerals, Paul says in Thessalonians that we don't have the kind of hope that the world has. You know, I, I remember you know, Chris's beautiful dad. He, his hope was that when he died, this is what early in his life, when he died, the lights are going to go off, they're going to be over. I've heard that over and over and over again. And I've just thought, what a terrible hope. What that, what's, is that hope? We're just going to be completely inflamed and consumed and our, our spirit's gone and everything. I think that's what got him so emotional all the time after he was saved because he realized this isn't it. <laughs> this isn't it. We're seeing these men's worlds change. Has your world changed in relationship to Jesus Christ? That's not just I was born again. I got really excited and had experience, fell down or whatever I did. No, our whole new world is listening to Jesus. Now, you notice I didn't go into my own view of eschatology, One of the things I've learned, especially in working with people who like to follow up with questions, prison ministry, boy, that's an interesting group, the questions you get asked and the questions they get asked that they don't have an answer for. And so I've adopted, long ago I adopted a little phrase, what does the Bible teach do you, do you believe in eternal security? Well, no, I don't. Well, I do, and I think you're wrong. Well, I don't agree with you, and you're wrong. Wait, so stop. What does the Bible teach? What does the Bible teach about that and any other of thousands of subjects? That's what we need to do. Let's, let's, let's stop and put it this away. Instead, of what does the Bible teach? Let's listen to Jesus' view of it. And we can see how this is causing these persons' world to literally just explode around them, but it's exploding into a place where they're going to walk and give their whole lives for it. (laughs) But I tell you, I tell you that Jesus' words as He ends... Sorry, I've lost my, my spot here real quick. But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wish, just as it is written. By the way, we didn't say that John the Baptist was Elijah. He said John the Baptist is Elijah. If you could accept that John the Baptist is Elijah. He did restore all things. He basically put it into proper perspective. <laughs> May God change us and may He continue as we listen to Him right our wrongs intellectually and spiritually. May we be willing to give up ancient citadels for the truth. Father, lead us into truth. Your word is truth. Amen.